Corinthians 11, 1 through 6. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Let's pray one more time together before we get started. Well, Father, uh, today we are in a text of Scripture that is so important for us, Lord, because we do have an adversary, we do have an enemy who goes around like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And Lord, we dare not take our adversary lightly. Help us to have our, a proper respect for our adversary and the danger that he poses. For Peter tells us to be sober because of Satan's devises. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would help us and equip us and give us a mind that is girded with truth. Help us to discern rightly and to be able to spot and to destroy in our own lives those tactics of the enemy that would come in and try to steal and destroy and kill and ruin. Father, I pray that as we look at the, of the heart of the apostle here, that every one of us would have the same mind, as Paul prays there in Philippians chapter 2, that we would all be of the same mind, that we'd all want the same thing, and that is for our church to be grounded and cemented in the gospel, and that we would never waver on our commitment and on our devotion to Christ, our King. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, we are but dust, and we confess to you that we are nothing in your sight. If the nations are but a drop in the bucket, Lord, what are we in this room? God, you are truly a God of jealousy, a God of holy love. You have no wavering in your love. Your covenant love does not move. It is not compromised ever. And you are a perfectly faithful husbandman to your church. And so, God, we pray that you would show us something of the fidelity of our God today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. What a glorious, great, grand portion of Scripture uh, today. There are times when I come on a text and I realize, I have to be brutally honest with myself, that there is just simply no way that I'm going to go through all those verses in one sermon. 
Verses 1 through 6 is such a text. But what makes this even more unique is that last night I actually flirted with the idea of even splitting up verses 1 through 3. So that just shows you how just caught up I was. But um, we will look, Lord willing, at verses 1 to 3 today and then leave the rest, Lord willing, for next Lord's Day. Okay, so this, sec- this section here has everything to do with Paul's defense of his apostleship. The only difference is that this time Paul begins to zero in on the gospel itself and its survival in the church. Really, it's, this is the lifeline of the church right here. This is the church being tempted away from the true gospel and to another gospel, a different Jesus, as Paul will go on to say. And let me just say this at the outset, as Paul is going to begin to more and more crystallize the opponents that he's after here, that there is nothing more insidious in the whole planoply of God's scripture than a false teacher. There's nothing more devious, there's nothing more dangerous in all of Scripture, than someone that would be used as a tool for Satan to draw you away from the truth. Because he is not just drawing you away from the truth, but he is drawing you away to a certainty of perdition. And all from the beginning of time, there have been those who are insistent on deviating from the path of righteousness. Peter in his second epistle, reminds his audience of that very thing, that even from long ago, from ages past, the the covenant people of God have always had to endure false teachers, false prophets, false brethren right in their midst. Listen to Peter's description in 2 Peter 2, 1. He says, false prophets also arose among the people. And there, if you study the exegesis of chapter 2, it is certain that he is speaking of Old Testament people. He says, for there will also be false teachers among you, so that we should expect in the new covenant church an analogy between what went on in ancient Israel to what is going on today. He says, they secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master that bought them. And there I take the word bought them, not in a salvific manner, but just simply in a general redemption that took place at the exodus a controversy that we don't have time to develop here. But he says, and he brings swift destruction upon themselves. This is what false teachers do. He says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth has been maligned. Do you know how much problems false teachers cause? God only knows. But false teachers, cults, cultic leaders, you name it, heretics, liberals of every type, simply compound the warfare for the Christian church. They simply compound the problems that we face here in this evil world. They make our, 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 our work more difficult. Difficult enough it is to have to deal with people in a sinful world, to have to live in a sinful world. Difficult as it is to have to be in this body of death. Difficult as it is to have to spread the truth of the gospel under persecution. Compounding all of that, is the lies, the deception, and the heresy that false teachers present. He says their greed will, in their greed, they will exploit you, getting down to the motive of the false teacher, with false words. Everything for God has to do with propositional truth. 
And for these false teachers, they have false words, false ideas, false doctrines, false teachings. Their judgment from, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God in His sovereignty has ordained the destruction of these false teachers. And if I can sum up what is at the very heart of all the false teaching and false teachers that have ever existed, I would say it begins with self. Self-interest, self-pride, self-seeking, self-aggrandizement, self-period. And this is why Paul is very quick to isolate that truth and to attack it. And he's already attacked it by condemning it. He condemns boasting in self. As we saw last week in chapter 10, he condemns the idea that men are approved by what other men approve. That men are approved ultimately before God by the fact that they are commended by others. When Paul says, look, the only commendation that matters is that which comes from God. But here he uses a slightly different tactic. If you would, Proverbs chapter 26 is sort of the, the paradigm through which we can view Paul's exegesis in this text. For in the first part of Proverbs 26, beginning in verse 4, and then in verse 5, verse 4 gives us the first side of that equation, and that is this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, so that Paul refuses to engage in the same sorts of self seeking tactics that the false teachers were engaged in. He doesn't want to boast in himself, and so he doesn't go along with their way of boasting. However, in verse 5, we have the, the other side of the coin. We have the other equation, if you would. Answer a fool. There's the imperative. Answer the fool as his folly deserves that he be not wise in his own eyes. So if you would, Paul is going to engage in a little bit of foolishness, as he calls it. Look at the text. He gets into this in verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. That foolishness that he's referring to there is boasting, that he needs to boast, not because he wants to boast, not because it's his nature to boast, but because of the present situation in Corinth, it is necessary that Paul boast in his apostolic credentials. You know the climax of this text. When you reach down into verse 21, he says, whatever, he says in verse 21, the second part, he says, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I am more so. You want to boast about your sacrifice to Christ, Paul could boast. If that's the line that you want to go down, Paul doesn't want to go down that line. He doesn't want to boast in himself. I think Paul would rather not ever talk about himself. He says, as a matter of fact, we do not preach ourselves. But so many today are preaching themselves, preaching their own ministry, preaching their own personality, celebrity Christianity, 
All of this magnetic personality in the pulpit. I tell you, as I told you before, when we look at Paul, the description that is given of Paul's speech, Paul was probably nothing impressive. Paul was nothing that you would be drawn to necessarily. I don't think that Paul had the charisma that certain Christian magazines are looking for today. I think if you looked at the Apostle Paul, you would see a beat-down little man that was quite probably not attractive to behold, and, and then with speech that is really not very eloquent like Apollos, but not in knowledge. As a matter of fact, he says that at the end of that text. Did you see it? He says, I am not unskilled in knowledge. In fact, in every way, verse 6, I have made this evident to you. You see the power and the, the persuasiveness of Paul doesn't lie in his personality. It lies in his preaching. It lies in his doctrine. It lies in the breadth and depth and, 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 and the scope of his knowledge and his grasp of the Word of God. And if people dare to compete with Paul for the church, he is ready, if need be, to assert himself. To answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, Paul does two things here, or three. Number one, he, he condescends, as we have seen here, to the fool's logic, verse one. But he also is going to, in the same way, compete for the love of the church. And then lastly, as we'll see, he is going to combat the works of the devil and engaging in a, in a little bit of foolishness, as we've already seen, Paul shows maybe a little bit more of the possible identity of these opponents in Corinth. When he appeals to his apostolic authority there, as we looked at in verse 21 and 22, he appeals to his Jewish pedigree. He, he, he appeals to the fact that he is a Hebrew, much like what you find in Philippians chapter 3. And there, he is attacking the Judaizers. So it's very possible that the fools that he is condescending to have to come down to their level to refute their tactics are nobody less, no one less than the Judaizer. But secondly, I want to show you that he also, he doesn't just condescend to their foolishness, but he also competes for the love of the church. And look at verse 2 with me. This is where he does that. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He says, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. It's amazing. As Paul begins to lay out his concern for the church, he brings forth two very powerful emotional forces, jealousy and fear. Because as he's going to go on in verse 3 to say, I am afraid for you. I am afraid, he'll go on to say, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. And so jealousy and fear. And his jealousy is rooted not again in a self-motivation, a self-seeking. It is actually a jealousy that is like God's. Matter of fact, one commentator translated that phrase, that genitive phrase that way. He says, I am jealous for you with a jealousy such as God has. In other words, it is a God-like jealousy. What are we talking about? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, Yahweh is repeatedly self-proclaimed as the jealous one. So, two things 
We have to see here in this divine and human analogy between God and Paul, in this analogy we see the redemptive jealousy of God and we see the eschatological jealousy of Paul. Eschatological. That just means future. He's concerned for the church, not just today, but in a hundred years from now, what's going to happen. When Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his church for refusing to give communion to those who were not members, who were not believers, rightly so, they voted him out, and in his farewell sermon, he said that their parting away from one another, pastor and sheep, is but a momentary, a momentary departure that there will be a reunion. There will be a reunion before the judgment seat of Christ where every pastor and every elder and every shepherd will have to give an answer and will have to give an account for his ministry beneath the great and awesome chief shepherd himself. But God reveals himself in his redemptive jealousy to his people. This is who God is. I can't stress that enough. You want to talk about God's attributes This is what theologians call theology proper, the the exercise of theology that flows and stems and comes from the very person of God himself. God says in Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isn't that amazing? amazing? When God says such high things about himself, and yet man says so many God diminishing things about him. They want to bring him down to their level. This has always been the problem. They want to bring God, the infinite, transcendent, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, the God of Scripture, they want to bring him down to their level. So God says, you thought that I was altogether like you. But as Isaiah says, God is actually other. God is beyond. God is above His ways above our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. And God, as a consuming fire, is a jealous God. And this jealousy always pertains to faith. And this will become crucial. It says in Exodus 34, 14, You will not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Your God's name is Jealous. That's one of his names. He is so jealous. That is his name. Jealous. Jealous. But it is not a morbid, self-seeking jealousy that we know of today, the type of jealousy that can drive a lover to murder. But it is the kind of jealousy that is holy, pure, and ultimately covenantal in nature. Because God has so bound his honor and his glory to his covenant with his people, he is jealous even more than for his his people, but for his great name, for his great glory. Deuteronomy 6.14, you will not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That's how jealous God is. Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. More simply, 
more than just being betrayed on behalf of his faithless people. God's jealousy is rooted for a love for his own honor and his own name and his own holiness. The restoration of his people resulted from a zeal for his own name. Everything does. Listen, if you want to grow from a child to a man, if you want to grow from a child to an adult in theology, you must grasp this fundamental primary starting point principle of all theology, and that's this, that God does everything to uphold His glory. If you can't swallow that pill, the Bible will not make sense. God does everything. Above all, the primary motive for everything that God does is that it would, it would, it would tend to His own glory that it would result in the glory of God which equalizes everything in the universe and makes it what it is. For if God did not love His glory above all else, then God would be, as John Piper said, an idolater. But God is not an idolater. He knows that His glory is preeminent. His glory is the highest. It is the most, it's the maximum. It's the most excellent. It is the highest achievable possible status of any being, and it is God's being, God's glory. But not only that, we also see Paul's jealousy, and it is an eschatological jealousy. And I say that because he says there at the, and in verse 2, so that to Christ... Let's, let's back up a little bit because I don't want to miss this. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You're being prepared right now, my dear friends. You are being prepared for one great eschatological presentation at the end of the age when you will be presented before Almighty God as a pure, chaste bride. And you are pure not because of your own doing. You are pure not because of your own faithfulness or owing to any of the merit inside of you. You are pure because the grace of God has purified you. And because by the grace of God, He has kept you in His name. Paul knew that Jesus was the husband. And so that makes Paul sort of like the matchmaker or even closer to a Jewish concept of a family, the father that has the highest honors conceivable in the marriage ceremony of presenting the, bri the bride to the bridegroom, to the bridegroom. And it is comprehensive. It is a cooperative act. Paul is a fellow worker with Christ because Christ in Colossians 1.22 will present the church to himself. Paul says he's going to present the church and it is also comprehensive because he will present every believer. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. You want to know what is the mission of ministry? This is it right here. You want to know what is the purpose of pastoral ministry? This is it right here. We proclaim him, Christ admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. That is what ministry is all about, making sure that you are complete in Christ. What does that mean? That you're mature, that you're growing into the measure and the stature of Christ. 
Which just means what? That you are filling up more in your own life and in your own personality and in your own character, more Christ-likeness. That's what it means to be holy. To be holy means you're becoming more like Jesus. To be holy means you are becoming more Christ-like. You are taking on more and more of His character. It is eschatological, my dear friends, and it is climactic, this presentation. It is climactic, and I can't, with my breath, I don't have enough breath. I I don't have enough wherewithal to paint to you the glorious picture of the marriage marriage supper of the Lamb. The, The coming celebration between Christ and His church. And so I will let the revelator do it for us. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 9. This is, what, this is what Paul is getting us ready for. He says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words are true. These are true words of God. These are true words of God. And that is our, that is our destiny, folks. That's where we're headed. We are headed to such a glorious future. We are on the brink of a future and future glory that is beyond your wildest dreams. Beyond your wildest dreams. It is a bliss. It is a comfort. It is a joy. It is a pleasure that I can't even begin to describe to you. It will be, as Sam Storms calls it, joy's eternal increase. I like that. I think that's right. A infinitely growing joy, an infinitely growing capacity to enjoy God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what we're all seeking in this life? To be happy? Oh, God is going to so satisfy us in heaven. Our capacity to enjoy Him will never end. He will always be showing us new, new contours. It will be like a prism of pleasure. New pleasures every day at His right hand. He will reveal to us and open our eyes and open our minds and enlarge our hearts to be able to receive greater and fuller and deeper and more extensive and more moving pleasures of the glory of God. This is what Paul is going to present the church for. (laughs) This is not small. This is big. This is big time. This is an eschatological way of living. Paul always had one foot in this world and one foot in eternity. He was always ready for the last day. I think he was so gripped by what so few pastors are gripped by today. And that is standing before the awesome judgment seat of Christ. Thirdly, he not only competes for the love of the church, but he also combats the works of the devil. Look at verse 3. I'm afraid 
Here's the other powerful force at work in Paul's heart. I am afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The mind is a powerful thing, brothers and sisters. The mind is the, the portal, the entry point of spiritual warfare. Everything begins in the mind. That is why Satan will attack the mind. That is why false teachers, first and foremost, attack the mind. They attack the doctrine. They attack the thinking. They attack the philosophy. They attack the worldview. If we can change the worldview, if we can change the thinking, the philosophy, the theology, and the doctrine, then we will change the allegiance. And here it's away from Christ and to another Christ. To another Christ. Satan is at work in Corinth, but he's doing it through the agency of false apostles. Look at, look, at, look at chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Just like there is an analogy between Paul's love for the church and his jealousy and God's love for the church and God's jealousy, so too there is a diabolical analogy between the false teacher, the false prophet, and their master, Satan. They follow him. They are like him. They are the blind, as Jesus said, they are the blind leading the blind. They are deceived and deceiving. And many of them are willfully deceived. I have spoken to many of them that I could just, I walk away from certain conversations saying, those folks are willfully ignorant, willfully deceived. They don't want the truth. I can show it to I can bring my Greek Bible. I can show them the exegesis. I can try to explain to them the ground. It doesn't matter. Blind allegiance. Fideism. Blind allegiance. Like Peneus, Paul was jealous with God's zeal. And he's ready to stab the false teachers where it hurts. He's ready to end their strategies and their influence and their, and their, the, their, their, their doctrines. Like Paul says in Timothy, that their theology will spread like gangrene. You've got to cut it off. You've got to cut it off. Now, there's three things that Paul had to do in order to combat what Satan was doing. Number one, he had to know the threat. He had to be aware of the threat. And But today, isn't it amazing that today... So many people are so afraid to call out heresy. So many people are afraid to expose false doctrine. They don't want to make any waves. They rather build bridges with heretics rather than to burn them down, which is what should happen. And Paul is fearful that there's a real fatal threat. He says in verse 4, just so that you see that this is a systemic issue. This is not surface level. This is not just we're disagreeing about style. You know, they want blue carpet. We want red carpet. They want traditional, you know, worship. You know, we want uh, a contemporary. <laughs> we want Jewish worship. They want Gentile worship. No, it's not anything like that. It's deeper than that. Verse 4, 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, and this type of conditional clause is actually assuming a truth, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel that you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Case in point, they were doing this. They were bearing with these folks. Another reason why he answers the fool according to their folly. They are already bearing with the fools. They're already listening to self-boasting arguments. And so they had to know that there was a real threat. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, you've got to know the strategy of the enemy, what it is. Knowing that there is a threat in the church is preliminary. Knowing what the enemy's strategy is is disarming, and it is strategic. It gives us the upper hand. As with all false teachers, they work in stealth. Please listen. Stick with me here. The exegete, Stick with me. It's not as if the Judaizers were calling for abandoning faith in Christ altogether. It's not that. It's that they were presenting a slightly different way of conceiving of the faith. But after all, isn't that the way that deception works? It is not that Satan lures you away with less. It's not that Satan lures you away with, some, sometimes anyway. It is not as if he's saying, look, I'm offering you less, but they claim to offer more. Satan claims to offer more. That's always the trick. Do this and you'll really be happy. Paul and his analogy of how the serpent deceived Eve is a very helpful link for us to understand the sinister plot of these false teachers. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, because I think we would be remiss if we did not look at the temptation of Eve. In Genesis, the serpent is persuasive because he is crafty. In fact, Satan is introduced as more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. His craftiness can be seen by his insidious designs and his insidious deception. He tempted Eve so as to prey on the weaker vessel. He said to the woman. And he was also crafty in that he got her alone by herself. He attacked the human race by attacking the mind, knowing that bad theology always leads to bad conduct having no sinful deeds to accuse the human race with. The accuser uses a different tactic. Instead of accusing or condemning them, the serpent attacks the mind, knowing if he can change the thought life, then the deeds will follow suit. From there, the serpent proceeds to undermine the word of God. Has God said? So he causes Eve to do two things. He causes Eve to waver about God's prohibitions and about God's promises. Very important. Satan cast doubt on the word of God, not, notice, not by outright denying that God had spoken, but what he had spoken and how he meant it. It's a much more sophisticated and, and a much more complex attack than just simply saying, God doesn't speak. Sometimes that's how false deceivers work. It's not that the Bible is not the Word of God, but it's what the Word of God says. They twist, as Peter says, they twist, they distort, they pervert the Scriptures to their own destruction. 
Indeed, he says this, he causes her to distort her think, he distorts her thinking and he causes her to doubt God's holy commands. He says, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? God never said that. Notice also that already by this time, Satan's first objective is accomplished. Infiltration. He's already dialoguing with the woman. He's already got a platform, and that's the way that false teachers always operate. First, they seek an opening. First, they seek a platform, a place where they could spread their lies. That's why John tells us in 2 John, verse 10, don't give them a platform. Don't open your house to them. Don't bring them in and allow them to spread their doctrine, to spread their doctrine. The serpent also caused Eve to question God's promises of life and death. If you are careful to note, in Genesis, God had already promised provision for life. He says, these are the plants that you may use for what? For food. In other words, for life, for survival, for sustenance. And he also caused her to doubt the promise of God for death, for transgressing the prohibition concerning the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil. And in addition to that, as we just continue to look here at the deception of Satan here, the, in addition to that, the serpent also deceived Eve by causing her to question God's attributes. He brings God's justice into question by assuring the woman that she will not die for breaking God's law. And simultaneously, he causes her to question God's holiness, since if she is tempted to think, if I eat of this, God will hopefully, he'll just overlook the sin. The whole dialogue opens the door for questioning the wisdom of God for making the world the way that it is. Did God really say, is this the way things really are? He further questions the attributes of God by casting doubt on his goodness. For God knows that in the day that you eat, eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that amazing? He questions God's motive and we should stand in awe at this point. We should stand in awe at this point at the diabolical scale of Satan's deceptions because in an instant, Satan has become more righteous than God. This is the ultimate blasphemy. But then, why should we, why should we be surprised? You remember Isaiah 12? I know all of you here could probably recite it from memory, right? But Isaiah 12 Verse, or excuse me, Isaiah 14, 12 depicts the fall of Satan. We should not be surprised at the depth of Satan's evil because this is the incipient sin and the incipient re rebellion in Satan's heart from the very beginning. This gets into realm of theology that theologians tread lightly on. The origin of evil. How did it spring up in Satan's heart? How did it arise? Herman Bavink in his great four volumes of, of theology says, we do not know. And if Bavink doesn't know, friends, I don't know either. 
This is blasphemy. But listen to the pomp. And I do believe that this is an analogy between what was going on there during the, 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 the captivity Isaiah is preaching to and then the, in, the, in the kingdom there and, and to Satan. He says, you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will make my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol and into the recesses of the pit. Into the recesses of the pit. That is how Satan works. And then, lastly, not only knowing a little bit of his strategy, but also knowing his target. The target of false teaching and false teachers is simple. Commitment to Christ. Even simpler, faith. If Satan is like a roaring lion that prowls around seeking someone to devour, what is it that he is going to devour? We should not expect for him to creep out behind a bush somewhere and physically bite us. It's a metaphysical reality. It's a spiritual reality. What Satan is after, what he's hungry for, what's on the menu for Satan is faith. He wants to eat up your faith. He wants to gobble up your faith. He wants to devour and tear your faith to pieces. And if he can get you to waver and to compromise your commitment and your devotion to Jesus Christ, then he will have eaten a good meal and he will be just satisfied with that. Luke chapter 22 verse 31. You remember what Jesus said to Peter. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. You don't take Satan serious in your life, then he already has the upper hand. Peter says, be sober about Satan. Are you sober about Satan? Do you not realize that what he's after is nothing less but that to devour you and to obliterate your life? Nothing less he is not a little cartoon man with a, with a tail and horns and a pitchfork. He is an evil spirit. He's an evil demon. He is a fallen reprobate angel. He's insidious. His hatred for God is unparalleled to anything and anyone that we have ever seen on this planet. He is insidious. He is... He is unrelenting in his pursuit like a lion. I went on to a, a, a website last night, and I just, 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 just for kicks, I wanted to study what, what lions, what, what, what lions, when they hunt, what is it like when lions hunt? I don't know what I put in the Google, but it was like that. And it was amazing what I found. Do you know what the main object of a lion is when it hunts? To be invisible to be undetectable. He's not there. You know, the gazelles are there. They're, they're grazing. They're eating. They're just enjoying themselves. They hear something. They look around, but they don't see anything. And all the while, you know, 100 yards away, this 400-pound lion is just lying in the brush, just waiting in the brush for his opportune time. 
And that's the way it works for us. Satan is after us. Oh, but we need not be like the crazy charismatic circles that want us to think, oh, that Satan is in every little thing. I had somebody tell me, well, the devil was in the red light because I was late. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. Our adversary is a lot craftier than that. He's more insidious than that. He's more wicked and evil than that. And he prays and he uses his dominion, his spiritual hosts of darkness. And he's not in physical things. He's not in your, well, I was going to say he's not in your television, but he is actually in your television. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying. We need to study our adversary more, right? Think about it. When's the last time you went to church anywhere and heard a sermon on Satan? We need to take it more serious. And what he's after is our devotion to Christ. Friends, what he's after is believers and their commitment to Christ. Look at the text. He says he, he, he's afraid that their minds will be led astray. And then he uses two very, very similar words that are slightly different. And I think placed together, they create sort of a nuanced meaning. He says, from the simplicity and the purity And then the words devotion are not in the text, but the word devotion is given to us to try to sort of smooth out the meaning. The word is something like single-mindedness, singularity, singleness. It just means it's trying to, he's trying to steal your, your, your simplicity, and that doesn't mean, again, ignorance. That just means that you have no competing allegiances. You have one love. Christ is it all. Christ is everything. Christ is your husbandman. He is the one to whom you belong. He is your shepherd. You hear his voice. You follow him. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. It is impossible in this life to serve two masters. Jesus said if you try, it will, this will be the outcome. You will love the one and you will hate the other. There's no way. You can't serve money and Christ. You can't serve fame and Christ. You can't serve beauty and Christ. You can't serve lust and Christ. You can't serve materialism and Christ. You have to be devoted one or the other. And Jesus said you will either love the one and you will hate the other. And when he said that, he meant... If you prefer mammon to me, what you've said is, I hate you and I despise you. That's the way that God takes it. Because your eyes have not been open to the treasure hidden in the field. And you should be giddy and you should be frantic and paranoid and willing to do anything you got to do. Sell everything you have to get the treasure. That means surrender. That means live for Christ only. Jesus said, unless you lose your life, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate your life in this world, you cannot be my disciple. Even if you are looking to erect the most intimate relationships. You say, but that's my mom. And Jesus says, if you do not hate your mother, you cannot be my disciple. Nothing can take preeminence 
over our devotion and over our singular, singular focus on Christ in this life. Let's pray. Father, so easy to underestimate our enemy and so hard at times, Lord, to muster up the sobriety that we need. Father, would you please open our eyes to more spiritual reality? Would you mature us? We don't want to stay spiritual children. We want to mature. We want to grow. We want to, we want to know a little bit of what Paul meant when he says in Ephesians 4 that we would fill up the stature of Christ and his perfect maturity, his perfect devotion, his perfect holiness. And God, I pray for protection. As we consider our enemy, we know that he wants to devour the word of God, just like he wants to devour faith. He seeks to devour your word out of our heart. And so help us as much as it is possible for us, as much as it is with us to work out our salvation. Help us against distraction. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted by the things of this world. Help us, Lord, not to be so quickly mundane and earthbound. And Lord, free us. Open our eyes to the reality of the of the things that are above. Help us to see the things unseen. And Lord, help us, Lord, in our devotion to Christ. Oh God, I pray for every single believer in this room, especially the members of our church who will be here to affect the church with their walk with you, that you would give us a walk that is fresh, affections, that are vibrant, love to Christ, love to the unseen Christ. Give us more of that, we pray, in Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Well, we are going to close with that, and let me just say, God bless you. Be on your guard this week as you realize that you have a real adversary, the devil, and that he prowls around, and he is not a respecter of persons. I pray that you will be on your guard every day, but that above all, that you would put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand in the evil day. I pray that you stay in fellowship with us for a while. God bless you.